This is Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where only one opinion matters, and it's not yours. Hello there, and welcome to the Hindsight Report. This is something else I'm trying just to be different in this podcast, and what I'm going to try and do is not just talk about one sport in a podcast episode, but I want to talk about several sports, and also I want to bring in other things. There's movies, there's music, there's TV, there's walking down the street and looking at a fight in the street. Whatever it is, whatever's happening in the world of Albion Park, (laughs) I will be talking to you about it on the Hindsight Report. And why do I call it the Hindsight Report? Because you can listen to this program and then in a week's time you'll realise that with hindsight, perhaps I should have said something else. And that is exactly what happens to me in my normal life. And so now you can listen to it all on this wonderful podcast that I like to call Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. I guess this is an obvious one to start with, isn't it? The New South Wales State of Origin team for the second match of the 2023 season is being played at Lang Park in Queensland. And once again, we've got a massive overreaction uh, to the result of the first game. And I don't know what more we can say about the fact that the coach is not up to the job. He is protected by his mates in the media who all work with him, either for Channel 9 or for Fox Sports. Uh, And basically, he doesn't know what he's doing. And it's been proven over the past three years that Brad Fittler is not up to this job. And I don't know... How much longer this could go on for? Perhaps after this game is won next week by Queensland and they win the series again that they were never supposed to win, that uh, perhaps we'll finally realise that this guy just isn't up to it and the selectors along with him and his mates who are up there protecting him. So the main talking point from the game for next week is the fact that Nico Hines, who is the current Dalian medalist um, and is generally regarded as one of the best two or three players in the game in the NRL at the current point in time, who finally made his debut for New South Wales in Game 1 off the bench, and the coach refused to use him until the 69th minute when an injury to Tom Trebojevic meant that he had to go out and play in the centres for 11 minutes. And he then missed a tackle that led to a try, and he was basically given the blame for that. And that was the try that won Queensland the game. And then he played last weekend and didn't have one of his best games, and that's just the way football is. And now suddenly, with the New South Wales halfback injured and out for the rest of the series, Nathan Cleary is gone, and the next best halfback for New South Wales in the NRL is not chosen. They've just decided not to pick him at all in the 17 or the 18, for that matter, for the second game. 
So how do you justify how do you justify picking this guy in the first place on the bench and not using him until the last ten minutes of the game, and then decide on the back of that ten minutes, and perhaps last weekend's game that he now isn't up to state of origin standard. Now something that got me today also was Phil Gould. Now we all know Phil Gould is Fittler's best mate. They've been as tight as buggery for almost forty years. And he came out and basically said, before the team was announced, let me tell you, even though it had basically been leaked, that Nico Hines didn't have the experience necessary to lead the New South Wales team on the park in a state of origin game. So when do you actually get that chance to do that? How do you say that after basing that on 11 minutes of play in a state of origin game that you've been thrown into at the very end and on the basis of forming your team. Now, he said that he had, Nico Hines hadn't led his team to a grand final or anything like that yet. Well, he's been at Cronulla for 18 months and he basically led them to the finals last year and he's probably going to do exactly the same this year. And so... Phil Gill's basically gone into bat before the team was even announced to make sure that, oh yeah, my mate Freddie, he's doing the right thing by going with Mitchell Moses. Now, even the most diehard Parramatta fan would have a lot of trouble trying to say that Mitchell Moses deserves to play halfback for New South Wales in front of Nico Hines or in front of probably two or three other candidates that you could come up with. He had a great game on the weekend against Canterbury, who are running as close to last as you can get and was made to look good by some pretty ordinary defence by the Bulldogs. And yet now suddenly he's expected to lead New South Wales from the halfback position. Does everyone remember Mitchell Moses' first game for New South Wales 18 months ago in Game 3 when they'd won the first two games in New South Wales and they were looking for you know a, a whitewash and that New South Wales got belted in that game? Does anyone remember Mitchell Moses' game in that? And then he disappeared, and now he's back. It's piss poor what they've done to Nico Hines. There's no doubt about that. And let's face it, if you look on the other side, other team, have a look at Daly Cherry Evans. Does everyone remember the rubbish games that he played at the start of his career for Queensland? His first three or four games were completely forgettable. He made mistakes. He didn't cost the team games as such, but he certainly helped New South Wales to win some of those games that he played in. And look at him now. He is basically, behind Cleary, the second best halfback in the game. And because Queensland have always backed their players, they back them in. And the problem that I have with New South Wales, is that they generally do what they've just done to Nico Hines. He got 11 minutes in a game, and okay, sorry mate, you're out the back door. Let's face it, they, they picked Tavita Pangai Jr. for the first game. Out of nowhere, that no one expected that he was going to get picked, and then suddenly he got picked. And he's played, and has had a fairly average sort of a game, and he's out the door now as well, after they got beaten <laughs> So all this crap about sort of picking players and sticking with them and trying to get the right team combination together, absolute crap from New South Wales. They just never, ever do it. It's rubbish. 
you look at uh, Regan Campbell-Gillard, who isn't in this team because he was injured for the first game. He's only just made his comeback. But last year, he was one of the best front rowers in the game. He played one game and suddenly he was out the door. Apparently because the Penrith connection didn't like him because he was still offside with them from when he played at Penrith. So it's all just absolute rubbish. And I'm sick to death of Fittler not getting any sort of blame. Everything sort of washes off him because he has Phil Gould and he has Andrew Johns there on Channel 9 every week making sure that they just bloody pander along to him and just say, nah, Freddie's good, Freddie's okay, everything Freddie's doing is right. It's the players that are the problem. It's not Freddie, it's not his coaching at all, it's not what he's doing. And that's what gets pushed out there. And then you've got Greg Alexander, who is a selector, who is on Fox, and he's always doing exactly the same thing. How about we get someone to coach New South Wales who's not involved in the media, who just wants to be a damn coach. And then maybe we'll have a chance of winning a game or a series again and not going through this same ridiculous rigmarole every single freaking year. For goodness sakes, Stephen Crichton was probably the best guy on the paddock for New South Wales last week. And I'm no big fan of Stephen Crichton, but he got picked and he had a terrific game. And now he's 18th man. He can't even get onto the bench for this game because we've got to rush back bloody Latrell Mitchell to make sure that he pounds Queensland centres and does the right thing. I can't believe that this is what still happens in rugby league. And we all know... Because this is the hindsight report that next week I'm going to be telling you exactly the opposite thing because everything I've said here will be the exact opposite of what is going to happen. I don't believe that now. I honestly believe Queensland are going to kick New South Wales' ass and New South Wales will deserve it and Freddie should get kicked out the door. Can't wait to see what happens and then how I react to it on the next show. So it looks like the St. George Illawarra Dragons are going to get a new coach. Maybe. As I do this program, it's all out there that Shane Flanagan is going to be appointed tomorrow as the new coach. But of course, they all thought that Jason Rolls was going to be the new coach. And on the day that it was going to be announced, he suddenly got cold feet and ran screaming back to Melbourne to make sure that he has that job once Craig Bellamy finally gives it away sometime in the next 10 to 15 years. But how about the Dragons? How bad are they going? I mean, they've already given Griffin the flick after 18 months, pretty much. Before that, they held on to McGregor for years, and there was probably three different times in that reign that he probably could have been shown the door, but they held on to him because Dragons guy through and through. Griffin, nothing to do with the Dragons. We can get rid of him real quick. So Flanagan's going to come in. So you can almost absolutely bet that Kyle Flanagan, who's currently playing number nine for the Bulldogs uh, reserve grade team, is going to be at the Dragons very soon, pulling on the number nine there as well. And it's interesting the fact that Ben Hunt got a phone call from Shane Flanagan during the week, and Shane Flanagan telling Ben Hunt that he definitely will be playing number seven if he comes to coach, which I reckon would have been when I come to coach, because he would have known. Now, Flanagan has some history at the Dragons. He was there as an assistant to Paul McGregor in the dying days of his coaching career. So he has some sort of idea of what's going on there. 
But what is it with the Dragons? They can't get players to come there. They can't hold on to coaches. And it's all apparently because of the deals that are done where the coach doesn't get what he wants. He doesn't get the coaching staff he wants. He doesn't get the selections that he wants. So why would you go there as a coach? And obviously that's part of why Riles decided to nick off somewhere else. Why would you go to a club knowing that you had those constraints on you and then the second that the team starts playing poorly, you're the one who gets the blame and gets kicked out the door? Is Shane Flanagan going to be the answer? I don't know, because I would have thought that if anyone could have done something there, Griffin probably had the grounding to be able to do that with the players. But his selections were very strange. Last year, he spent most of the year not giving the young players coming through a go and instead was using old players like Aaron Woods and Moses Mbai and these other guys that he brought to the club, um, Josh Maguire, and trying to get results out of them rather than bringing the youth through who looked like that they were going to be pretty handy and not giving them a go. And then this year, he's been bleeding them into the team a bit more but it was all too little too late. The team weren't making the progress that the Dragons wanted, and so he's gone. Is Flanagan about, going to be able to do anything different from that? I don't know that he is. Is he going to be able to attract players to the club? Now, he hasn't coached since he was at Cronulla, and of course we know he got suspended at Cronulla and then sort of moved on from Cronulla over all of the, uh, the drug scandal and that kind of stuff that was going on at the time. He's a premiership-winning coach. But is it a tainted premiership? Uh, well, that's up to you to decide as an individual as to whether that's the case. Can he do something with the Dragons that no one's been able to do since Wayne Bennett was at the club? From the outset, it looks like no. But if he's given time to do the right thing and to try and get in the players that he believes can do the job at Illawarra, then maybe he does. But if anyone expects anything to change in the next 18 months, then they're in strife. Because you look at Canterbury, who thought Seraldo was going to come in and just perform miracles immediately. Well, we've seen how tough that's been for him this year because he's had injuries, but he's also got a roster that he's still trying to negotiate his way through as well. So Flanagan's going to be under the same sort of pressure. And if the board suddenly decide that he... They hasn't got the results again and they move him on again. Well, we're going to be in the same position. The great thing about St. George Illawarra is that they have a massive and brilliant junior base to draw upon. Uh, and that has been the best part of that club. And yet they have failed to utilize it on most occasions. So that is something that Flanagan must get right. He must be able to draw out the best of the junior base and hold onto them and bring them through into grade football in order to succeed and to have the club have the success that they are still looking for. And look, Wynn Stadium is still a fortress when it comes to results. They win like four out of every five games. They tend to win at Wynn Stadium. So they should be using that more and they should be pushing that and making that their fortress. The crowds are still good at Cogra and at Wynn Stadium for the Dragons. So everything is there. It's right to go. It just needs the success. And let's see if it's Shane Flanagan and son Kyle who will be the ones to bring it.
Novak Djokovic has won the French Open men's crown and in doing so has reached 23 Grand Slam titles as a player. And that is the most by any male player ever in the history of tennis. So it's opened the question and the debate once again. Is he now the GOAT? Is he the greatest player, men's player, of all time? Is it something that you can (laughs) come up with from just the number of victories you have? Sometimes you've got to look at the players you are playing against in the era you are playing with. And if you just look at the surface of that, then you have to say that Djokovic has played the best. We had what some say are the big four, but certainly the big three in Djokovic and Nadal and Federer. And then they added Murray to that, and then a couple of others have also sort of been there or thereabouts. But those are the three players, and they have dominated men's singles Grand Slam titles over the past two decades. It's amazing how many they have won. Of course, Nadal is now at the end of his career and has not been uh, as solid on the tennis court. And of course, Federer has basically retired. He hasn't played for yonks. So, in a way, Djokovic came in at the right time. When he came in and started winning, Federer was at his peak. And from that point, he started sort of degrading a little and he wasn't quite as good as he was before Djokovic started playing. And Nadal, of course, was the king of clay, but on other court surfaces, he was the same. He was either hot or he was not. So in many ways, Djokovic has come at the right time, and certainly in the last few years, he's well, when he's been allowed in countries to play because uh, he hasn't been vaccinated because of COVID, um, he almost won the Grand Slam uh, two years ago. He is right on track now to win the Grand Slam because he's won the first two titles of the year. And does it look like anyone's going to beat him in the other two? He was dominant again uh, at Roland Garros. And he just appears uh, unbeatable in the pressure matches, especially. He just doesn't seem to crack. Is he the best of all time? (sighs) I think the problem with saying or trying to decide that, is that everyone will have their favourites. And in the long run, it's the heart that will speak more than the head. So many of us who saw Federer play through the 2000s will always believe that he's the greatest player of all time, just because of not only the way he played, but because of the kind of guy he is and the way he's presented himself. Nadal often uh, gets called uh, the greatest, He's won 14 French Open titles. Isn't that ridiculous that someone could win one major 14 times? I mean, no one is ever going to break that record. It is ridiculous. No one will even get close to that. Um, That means that, like on the other surfaces, he's won a few of them, but not as many as he has on clay. And I think that's he's always been seen as a clay court specialist, whereas Federer is always seen as a grass court specialist. and Djokovic is probably the better on the hard court surfaces. So if you're coming to try and choose someone to say that they're the best of all time, it's a very difficult thing to say. And you have to imagine also the greats of past eras who didn't play as long. Like so often tennis players used to be retired 
by the time they got to the age of 30. Um, often, by the time they got to 24, they were thought of as over the hill. And it wasn't until guys like, I think, say, Jim Courier and, and Agassi and those guys started coming through that male tennis players sort of thought you could win Grand Slam tournaments at an advanced age of, like, in your 30s. You have to look at other guys. Like, Sampras was a great player, and, and as I said, Agassi, and then before that, you've got uh, Becker, McEnroe, Lendl, uh, Connors, Borg, and then you've got all the Australians, Newcomb, Roach, uh, Rosewall. Um, it's, there are so many guys who, in different years, people would say are the best. And once again, with everything, uh, the game changes, the equipment changes, uh, and if let's say if you had uh, Djokovic trying to play with one of those wooden rackets from the 60s and 70s that uh, we all grew up playing with when we were kids, uh, I think it might be a different story with the smaller headed rackets with the wooden frame compared to what they use these days. Djokovic will always have a sort of a cross against his name, fairly or unfairly, uh, to do with, I think, the uh, the vaccination scenario from the COVID years, but also about when he wins the when he's won these tournaments compared to certainly at least let's say the other two. One thing's for sure is that statistically, he will be seen and regarded as the greatest of all time, and you'd have to fight pretty hard to come up with reasons, with fair reasons, to say that he isn't. A lot has been said about uh, the merger of the uh, PGA Tour in the US PGA Tour and, of course, the, uh, the European Tour and Live Golf over the last uh, week or so and what benefits it brings to whom and is it going to be good for golf in the long run? <laughs> it's pretty funny when you think about, I suppose, when you initially think about the guys who stayed with the, the, the PGA Tour and the European Tour and swore off the millions, the hundreds of millions of dollars they were offered to go to live golf, and now they find themselves in a situation where Everyone's going to come back together again over a period of time and they're not going to get the millions of dollars and these other guys who took it are going to be laughing and then still being able to come back and play in the normal tour. For me, that's not what the important part about this is. The important part for me is, is that a couple of months ago, the Live Tour brought a tournament to Australia and they played it in Adelaide and it was played over uh, the weekend, and they got enormous crowds. Three sellout days to this tournament, 27,000, I think it was, each day. Something ridiculous. Everyone had a great time. The spectators had a fantastic time. The players enjoyed being there and having a great time. And we had possibly the best um, field in an Australian golf tournament ever. And it was fantastic. It was fantastic on TV, got great ratings, and everyone was thinking, you beauty, next year perhaps we'll get two tournaments out in Australia. But now this deal's gone through, and the big question we have to ask ourselves now is, does Australia get any of these big tournaments again? 
or are we going to fall back into the same old scenario where we have uh, the Australian golf tour that runs for about three weeks in December every year and they whack in the Australian Open, the Australian PGA and the Australian Masters and they play over three weeks and you get a smattering of good golfers uh, you hope to get the best Australian golfers to come home, but they're usually resting as well. You can't get overseas golfers to come in because they're having their four-week break that they get from the tours. And the tournaments are run and won, and they're gone, barely seen on TV anymore, and that's it for the year. And then suddenly in January, the US PGA Tour starts again in Hawaii, and the European Tour starts again in South Africa, and then in Dubai, and Australia is just completely forgotten. Now, Australian golf has produced champion players, and we know we've seen them all out there. We've still got them out there now in Jason Day and Adam Scott, Cam Smith. Those guys are doing great things, and Mark Leishman, I should mention also. And we've had great champions who have won um, some of the big Grand Slam tournaments around the world, and just big golf tournaments around the world, but we don't see them coming to Australia anymore. And Australian golf is dying because of it. And I I mean that in not a terrible way in the fact that no one's playing golf and that there aren't good golfers out here in these tournaments. But because the big players aren't out here, they're not being promoted well enough. They're not being televised well enough. And they're getting very little coverage when it comes to TV or advertising or drawing people to the golf courses to watch them. And this was the great thing about this tournament in Adelaide is it looked like if that could happen on an annual basis, then perhaps that could kickstart a new uh, lease of life for the Australian PGA Tour. Now, if this all collapses now because of this merging of all these tours and the Australasian Golf Tour again gets ignored as it has been for a number of years, then what does that mean for Australian golf again? And this is what interests me most about this whole merging. There's got to be some way to have a spot open in the calendar for these great Australian um, tournaments that have been around for almost 100 years and have them played at a time where people will still be able to go to them and not because they're going to Christmas shopping, they can actually go and see these tournaments in uh, in November perhaps, whatever it is, and organise it better so that these tournaments can, can, can start to grow again and start to get the recognition that they deserve. And that involves getting the best players in the world, not just the great Australians, but obviously the great... Um, US and European golfers to be able to come out to Australia and play these tournaments. I don't know how that would work or how that could happen, but if anything good can come from Live Golf, the fact that they had that success in Adelaide is the one thing that Australian golf needed to kickstart itself again. So that's something that needs to be addressed and hopefully... Out of all of this, whoever is involved in Live Golf and the other tours going forward, that that is one of the things that they will continue to look at rather than just throw it into the bucket because now they don't care anymore because they've all got their money, they've got their cake and they're getting to eat it as well.
Alrighty, that's it for this week's uh, wonderful program. For those of you who've lasted this long, thanks for tuning in and listening. It won't always be all sport. There are other things in the world that I will be talking about and bringing it all together into one tight-knit podcast episode program for you to binge at your leisure and hopefully get something out of it and something that you can listen to and use against me whenever you see me in the street because I've gotten something else wrong, which is a pretty regular thing. Thanks for listening, and uh, I hope you'll come back not only for these episodes, but for all of these episodes on this podcast that helps me pass the time. Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Cheers. You have been listening to a Metal Cavern production.